Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. You are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast. And today we have a, a very special guest, Mr. Lawrence Caruana, a painter, artist, lecturer, and author who is currently talking to us from the city of Vienna, but has a kind of international presence. Uh, Lawrence, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's much appreciated. Thank you for having me. And... Thank you. It's an honor, really, since I've listened to your podcast while painting many, many times. So to be here is truly an honor. That's very kind. Before we get into your artwork, your background, and the multi-leveled and very interesting use you make of Western esotericism, call it that as a blanket term, let's just pick apart how I've just described you. So I've described you as a painter, an artist, a lecturer, and an author. Artist, I guess, is the is the umbrella term. A paint, your painting, we're going to talk about a lot, but maybe you want to get into a little bit of how would you describe yourself as a painter? I use classical techniques of painting, and I did spend a great part of my life actually pursuing that. And in the 20th century, and now the 21st century, it is literally something. It's esoteric. It's something that is not easy to find. And even if uh, today we have, for example, the internet where you can find videos which reveal these classical techniques, uh, really, you have to meet people. In my case, I met a master. That's why I'm in Vienna. And through my master, I found myself in that tradition of learning from master to apprentice. And so that's how I kind of became a painter in the sense of someone who really appreciates the craft of painting. Subject matter is another thing. If you look at the history of art, not just painting, but art, it's always concerned itself with sacred themes. And I am interested in the fact that in the West, after the Renaissance, humanism came about, and I believe humanism is an important uh, inheritance that we have as Western artists, but we seem to have neglected the sacred aspect of painting along the way. So I call myself a visionary artist, and I write about this in my books. And for me, visionary art is really the marriage of the hieratic and the humanist traditions, hieratic being the sacred traditions of all cultures, whether it be India or Aztec or uh, Byzantine, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, and of course, uh, all of the Western traditions that we have that are sacred. And then marrying that with the tradition we're coming out of in the last 500 years as painters, which is the humanist tradition, and that becomes a kind of visionary art. You're not on some kind of purist, back to back to medieval perspective, or any kind of program like that. You're You're quite happy to incorporate things from renaissance and post-renaissance art exactly but i have to say that my understanding of 20th century art is that it wanted to reject a lot of the historical painting that came before it and in the same process it rejected almost all traditions of, of art and painting so for me both as a writer and as a painter because i write about this i call them the sacred codes and the sacred codes are what we as artists, we can look back on all these different traditions. And so I look at, for example, perspective in a Byzantine 
painting, which is the crazy kind of reverse perspective, or the uh, other forms of perspective you might find in a Persian miniature, and see them all as legitimate and fascinating and something worth exploring in the art. And so uh, visionary art treats all of these different methods of perceiving perspective or perceiving form, perceiving the figure as valid and as a way for us to explore further the visionary aspect of painting. Hmm. Now, when you say visionary, we're talking about seeing things in some way, mm -hmm. having a vision. Now, if you're having visions, where, where are they coming from? That's the tough one. Yeah. And, uh, very often today, visionary art is simply labeled as psychedelic art. And I don't mind the label psychedelic. I don't mind uh, those traditions. But visionary is a broader term. For myself, the first 30 years of my existence were more concerned with dreams and uh, using dreams as the path to obtain my imagery and messages in my life and use painting as a way for me to bring out the deep dialogue that emerges when you go deeply into your dreams. And so I came to painting through dreaming. It was only when I was 33 that I had my first psychedelic experience. And since that time, I've pursued psychedelics as well, which I consider to be sacred plants. And yes, sacred plants, certain ones, have the power to give you visions. And in our culture, we have a hard time with that. But in traditional cultures, it's obvious that you turn to the plant as a kind of a sacrament. And through that sacrament, you're able to gain a, a view into the other world. And having experienced that, it was life changing for myself as a painter to spend six to seven hours with full on visions transpiring before your open eyes and engaging in that experience. That is revolutionary for my thinking, for my conception of the world, for my view of the world as an artist and so on. So uh, it's really just a question of, can we integrate that visionary aspect into our culture? Because there is a healing component as well. There's a very, it's not just a kind of a television pursuit where you're looking for entertainment. You know, there's a engaging your soul by entering into these visionary realms. And as you enter the visionary realms, suddenly it becomes transformative. So visionary art is definitely growing across the globe as this international movement. And not just from the viewer standpoint, but from the every person's standpoint, because every person can engage in that process and, and benefit thereby. So that's how visionary art is really becoming this growing phenomenon across the world but i wonder what you think of um things like santo daime for example like mm -hmm. a few 10 years ago your normal straight person had never heard of ayahuasca this is just to take one example nowadays you, you can't even walk around without stumbling over an ayahuasca ceremony you know what i mean like it's become really not mainstream yet but very widely spread and so mm -hmm. this is a very powerful uh, psychedelic concoction that you know it, you, you don't do it at parties it's not it's not uh, recreational it's it's serious serious journey you go on and uh, it's done in a ritual enclosure of some kind it's done in a ritual uh, context but people 
all over Europe, all over America, I dare say, are doing it quite regularly. It's become, I would say it's become part of Western culture, if we want to call it, or say European American culture, probably Australia and places like that as well. How do you interpret that, that uh, development? There are actually various answers to your question. And the first one that comes to mind is that uh, we as Western technological advanced, so to speak, advanced civilization, need to counterbalance our society and our views with something more archaic. So Amazonian culture, which is where ayahuasca comes from, there's still an element of enchantment, whereas right. we are a disenchanted society. That's one argument. I would also say that the kind of lifestyle in the West, which is very materialistic and very driven by time and scheduling and, and so on, leads to illness. And it leads to such illness that people need some cure or some transformation, some change in their lifestyle. And so these plants uh, emerge out of necessity. I, I want to add as well that, yeah, we're not in a period like the 60s where LSD could have been taken at a concert and it became a, a mass kind of transformation. It's really in these smaller groups and it's done in these smaller groups because the transformation is so profound in that short period that it really needs focus, concentration, support, uh, a lot of support in order to pass through such a transformational experience. So it, it's presenting itself into our society the same way it's practiced in, say, the Amazon. Well, let's be careful because there's a whole touristic side of, of the ayahuasca industry right now, which I don't yeah. want to get into. But in the, in the traditional setting, it's done in small groups, in a circle, at night, with the understanding that you're going to come face to face with your own inner world and the mythological figures that populate your own inner world. So for us who come from a culture based on cinema and television, where the only images we get are kind of those fed to us by, by our industries, it is something new and in new in a profound way. Although for those cultures, it's as old as time itself. For those cultures, that's always the way that they engaged in the relationship to life and the sacred and so on. Okay. You're a writer as well. What have you written? I've written really about the experiences I've had with art and with visions and so on and with painting, but trying to do it from a more scholarly uh, approach. And so I'm inspired by my own experiences, and then I do the research in order to ground it. And that means, for example, one book I have enters through the image, the ancient image language of myth, art, and dreams. I look at this idea of what is an image language? How can we... Uh, explain or understand and read images in a painting, in a myth, in a dream, in a way that we understand it. So what is the language of images? So that's one book I have. And the most recent one is uh, Sacred Codes, which I mentioned, which is looking into all of the codes that have been handed down throughout time by craftsmen and by artists on how to go about creating a statue or a painting or something like that. But I do want to mention one other book, which I think is important, is uh, a novel called The Hidden Passion. And that one 
was very important for me because I needed to present the Gnostic worldview in a way that was cohesive. And I wanted to do it in a narrative way. So I used the novel form. And uh, if you're familiar with the Gnostic worldview, there were these texts discovered in Nag Hammadi. And so I referenced those texts by actually citing them and quoting them throughout the novel and putting them into the voices of the different characters, mostly, of course, the voice of Christ, but also of Mary Magdalene. And there's visionary passages in the novel as well. So it was really my attempt to present the Gnostic worldview in the form of a novel. And that became very important for me from my later work. Right. So when you say the hidden passion, you mean the passion? Yes. Not uh, well, just the hidden Because the there's hidden a, passion could be like a Mills and Boone bodice-ripping mm -hmm. romance novel. You know what I mean? Yeah. There is a play on words. I love where it. Which passion are we speaking of? So Yeah. And you do a bit of speaking as well. That is something which just happened naturally over the last seven years or so, which is to say that I was called upon to, to give lectures in various locations where I'm known for what I do as a writer and as an artist. So conferences, but mostly as a lecturer, what I do is, and we'll speak about this, I guess, is the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art. I'm the director of the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art, but I also lecture there on a regular basis to the students who are constantly passing through our doors. So that's my main role as lecturer these days is at the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art. So this is a nice segue, actually. Let's talk about, there's a, there's a couple major projects you're involved in, and the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art is a, is a big project. I wonder, though, before mm -hmm. we get to that, if it might be good to talk about your formation as an artist, because I know you, you were involved with the Vienna School of Fantastic Realism, which is uh, another very significant artistic movement. How did you encounter this movement, Ernst Fuchs, and uh, how did that all play out? And what were they about? Because speaking for myself, I was shamefully uh, ignorant of, of that little corner of the artistic world. Yeah, so there is a movement called the Vienna School of Fantastic Realism. And there are five artists who form a part of that group. Ernst Fuchs being perhaps the uh, most recognizable. Other ones, their names are Arik Brauer and Rudolf Hausner, Anton Lemden, and um, Wolfgang Hutter. Those are the main five. These five studied together at the academy in Vienna after the Second World War. And you have to imagine that it was 1945, the academy was in ruins, it was bombed out, and they met there. And all the students at the academy at that time period were kind of pushing to say what was going to be the new art of this new period of European history. And uh, there were a lot of the artists of that period who were pushing for abstract art and, and what became abstract art. And Fuchs and the fantastic realists were actually pushing in another direction and saying that, no, 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 art has to remain figurative. And you have to understand within the context of Vienna that figurative art was understood to be Nazi art. That, that because Nazi art was figurative. And so the abstract ex expressionists wanted to just reject any form of figurative art. 
the fantastic realists said, no, we're going to become figurative and we're, we, because we love uh, the works of Netherlandish painters like Bosch or Bruegel. And, and we're going to carry on the history of European art as it was before the Nazi period. So for the period of 1945 to 1955, 1960 or so, they were really much underground and rejected by everyone in Vienna, in Europe. Fuchs himself, who is my master, moved to Paris and spent 12 years in Paris because he just couldn't get any respect in Vienna. But eventually, towards 1958 and so on, they started to get more and more support and attention. And then as the 60s emerged, they actually received a lot of support. So by 65, 66, which don't forget, now we're moving into the psychedelic 60s and rock music and everything else, the path they had taken as artists, which was to say fantastic, and that's the word they use is fantastic, fit in very well with the culture that was emerging during the 60s with the music and everything else. And so any image you sought out to accompany your, your rock music or your psychedelic music, well, fantastic realism worked really well. It is interesting because their paintings, like, for example, Fuchs and Brouwer, included a lot of war imagery from their experiences during the Second World War because they were traumatized by it. But they wanted to show the trauma of the Second World War, but also paint colorful, mythological, fantastic. And, and please be aware that the word fantasie in German means imagination. It doesn't really mean fantastic like we use it in English. So they wanted to use the imagination. And, and Fuchs himself was very much influenced by Jung, which is interesting because Freud, of course, was based in Vienna. Jung was based in Switzerland, but it was Jung who had the profound influence on the fantastic realists. They were searching for the collective unconscious. They were searching for those collective symbols, those collective images and so on, which had a certain mythic power. Yeah. Can I ask you a couple questions about them? Mm -hmm. Were any of them engaged with, let's say, the Eranos circle more more generally, that, or was this very much a Jungian thing? Because when you talk about this, I think of, I also think of the work of Henri Corbin, for example. If you're looking for the universal symbols, there's a number of places you can say they come from, right? You could take a Freudian mm -hmm. view and say they're just things our brains throw up, completely materialist. You could take a Jungian perspective, which is that there are these archetypes, but then you could also take a Corbanian perspective, which I would say argues for a more robust other world. There's, there's a place, mm -hmm the Mundus Imaginalis, where these images are living things and you can meet prophets there and you can meet angels and you can meet all kinds of entities that are that are real. They didn't come from your subconscious. They are there waiting to be met, you know? Mm -hmm. And having met Ernst Fuchs and lived with him and spoken with him and so on, I could see that he lived in that Mundus Imaginalis that you're describing, that uh, for him, it wasn't just the unconscious. He saw himself as a prophet in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets and where they would hear the voice of the spirits in rushing water, he would actually create abstract movements in the paint, but then listen and 
see within those swirls of paint spirits emerging, angels, cherubs, and so on, and bring them out. So in that sense, he was a, he was a prophet and he was extremely well-read as a human being and also uh, had mystical experiences which caused him to read deeply into the Torah, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. He was half Jewish, half Christian, like his father was Jewish, his mother was Catholic. And again, coming from Vienna in the period of the Second World War, that had a profound influence on his life. He was almost shipped off to Auschwitz uh, when he was 15 years old as a halb Jude but uh, his mother divorced his father and that allowed him to gain the status of, of a Christian. So it's a long story, but he had a very profound, uh, he dove very deeply into scripture and that had an influence on his art. But at the same time, he was very well read in the Greek traditions and so on. So he knew Greek mythology and mixed up all these different mythologies because he saw them all as just uh, images. He, he used an expression, the eternal halls of imagery as if they were engraved on tablets of stone throughout time so that you enter into the hall of eternal images. That's what he called it, the hall of eternal images. And there you find engraved upon these tablets, these archetypal images, well, archetype, in the sense of Plato, that they are the eternal images, the ones that have existed from the beginning and will last forever. They're timeless. Yeah. yeah. So, so that that's what he was searching for. And I, I would add quickly that stylistically as well, he did that, where he understood how the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, how they delineated a figure or a face, and then he merged all of those because each of those styles is a temporal style and so i can draw like the way egyptians drew the figure or like the babylonians but when you start to merge those then you're searching for a style which is atemporal which is which is beyond any kind of definite period of history and moves into what he called the hidden prime of styles so there's this Ur-Stil, which is really at the foundation of of all styles. Now, what, what, if any, links did these guys have with the Surrealists? Because I see some Mm -hmm. similarities and some differences. Yeah, so uh, they, they talk about that quite a bit. Vienna was very isolated as a culture, especially during the Nazi period. So they only saw surrealist works once Vienna had opened up after the Second World right, War. Because it was it was a degenerate art during the, the Nazi yes, period. Yes, exactly. And it was a revelation to them. And they were strongly influenced by Dali and Magritte. And Rudolf Hausner in particular, who who I, I described Fuchs. Hausner is the one who took the Freudian approach. Hausner is the one who looked at his own life from the Freudian standpoint and psychoanalyzed himself through painting. So he saw himself as very much working in the surrealist tradition. Then he got to know uh, André Breton. André Breton looked at his work and said, ça, ce n'est pas le surrealisme. It's Uh. not surrealism. Because it wasn't automatic, at at least in the sense that Breton understand that it has to be automatic. So uh, what's fascinating is that fantastic realism is a misinterpretation of surrealism 
And that's what makes it original. And I think what we're doing as visionary artists today is we're misinterpreting fantastic realism. And that's what makes it original, what we're doing today. I love it. In the same way that ska music is misinterpreted American soul music that was heard on crappy uh, radios in Jamaica that they didn't have a very good signal. And they said, oh, I could do a cover of that. And they invented this much cooler genre of music. Mm-hmm. Or to take a more topical example, the way that the history of Western esotericism, I mean, notably, like say, the, the famous Francis Yates example of rereading the hermetic texts as pre-Platonic ur-wisdom from the primordial eons, and coming up with a new hermetic wisdom can be seen as a long series of misinterpretations and misreadings, but creative ones. The one that came to me recently was Newton. And we realize now how much of an alchemist Newton was. And I think the other things he invented, like the calculus or gravity, are kind of like what he did along the way while searching for his alchemical view of the world. And he wanted to be remembered as an alchemist for his accomplishments as an alchemist. And along the way, he did all those things, which we remember him for today. But I don't think he would have wanted to be remembered the way we remember him. Well, he would have have wanted, I think it's safe to say, he would have wanted his view of scientific, what we call scientific inquiry, what he called natural philosophy, as a religious act of worship, exploring God's infinite goodness by exploring his creation to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And that's been mm-hmm. certainly written out of a, of a mainstream history. You won't get that in your, in your uh, college physics textbook, exactly. the stuff about God. So we have the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art. Now, this is something you set up. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me give a step before that. And that is the fact that in the year 2000, then, I was invited to meet Ernst Fuchs by working in a chapel in the south of Austria. And this was his Sistine Chapel, so to speak. He spent 20 years doing the interior of this chapel, and it's based on the Book of the Apocalypse. And so he was illustrating or depicting the apocalypse in this chapel. That's where I met him, and it was like a dream come true for me to to meet him because I was aware of his work for a good 10 years before that and had come under his influence as a painter, but I never imagined I would meet him. When we did meet, we hit it off immediately. And immediately he said, I would like you to work as my assistant, which was really flattering for me because uh, as far as I could see it, he held the keys to knowing how to paint and how to paint in this brilliant way, not just technically, but also this visionary way. So. I did. I left everything behind uh, in my life, but my wife joined me. She became his personal assistant. I became his painting assistant. And so we worked with him in this, imagine a big villa on the outskirts of Monaco with a view of the sea, this big studio with these large paintings. And every day I spent working 12 hours a day, standing on a ladder, working on the underpainting of these large masterpieces. So that was fascinating. And I didn't want to fall too deeply under his spell because he was a very charismatic and very uh, strong personality. So after a year of that, I went off on my own. 
But now I was one of the people who held the secret to how to paint in this manner. And people kept on writing to me saying, how do you do it? How do you do it? So finally, I decided to set up a summer seminar in Italy. And every summer, I started to teach this technique. And very quickly, it started to sell out that we had a maximum capacity of 20 people that we could house and feed during the three weeks. So after doing this for quite a few years, and I stayed in contact with Ernst Fuchs, and he himself came to visit us, his, his manager said to me, look, let's do this as an entire academy in Vienna. I have a space for you right in the center of Vienna, across from the Hofburg Palace of all places. Like That's really as central as you can get in Vienna. And so my wife and I agreed, and it took us about a year to set everything up because we were living in France at the time. And then we moved to Vienna, created the academy, and students started to come. So we've now been running this academy for seven years. And over the course of these seven years, it's grown larger and larger. And we've acquired more and more students from really around the world. So we're managing to attract students who are not just interested in the painting technique, which is, of course, important to me, but this whole idea of visionary art and what we do as visionary artists. So that's become my life over the last seven years is, is this academy project, which took on a life of its own. It just got larger and larger and larger. All right. Now, let's talk about Gnosticism. You, at some point in your journey, encountered the Gnostic myth, so-called, the myth of the fall of Sophia, found in the Apocryphon of John in the Nag Hammadi texts, which is probably from the 4th century. It might be 3rd century, but we know it's a much older myth, and, and scholars cannot agree on how old it may be. And is it pre-Christian, or is it the original Christian story or one of the original Christian stories? What's its relationship with Judaism? What's its relationship with Christianity? All these things are very, very debated questions, but it's certainly there. The second you see Christianity come onto the scene as a recognizable thing, this myth or some form of this myth is there already. So how did you encounter the Gnostic myth? That That's an interesting question, I think. And also... What is your take on the Gnostic myth? What is the Gnostic myth to you? And I know in a, in a lecture that, that I will link to that people can hear on YouTube, you talk about the Gnostic worldview. So what is, what is the Gnostic worldview? What is the Gnostic myth? What role does it play in your work? What role does it play in your existence? Those are very deep questions, but let me start. So if you want, if you want to I leave am... space for the ineffable in this, of course, yeah. you know, not, not necessarily everything can be put into words, but... No, but uh, I come from a Catholic tradition from the island of Malta, which is where my parents are from. And Catholicism in Malta is a very strong influence on people's lives. So I grew up as a Christian in the Catholic tradition. By the time I had finished my philosophy studies at university in Toronto, I was, and, and I specialized in hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation with its roots in biblical interpretation. So I had learned to read the Bible critically by that point. And I had also seen that there were other Gospels besides the main four that you find in the New Testament. So 
suddenly I was confronted by this existential question of, is the Catholic view presented to me as my cultural inheritance, the only view of Christianity? And I also have to say that I started to have mystical experiences, which is to say through dreams, as I was saying, dreams were very important to me at that time. As a result, my view of Christ changed dramatically. The first step was really seeing him more as a human being. I, I guess in the same way that the Buddha was a human being. He's someone who had to pass through stages of life to gradually achieve a state of enlightenment. That's the myth of the Buddha. And I was starting to see this figure, Jesus, as also someone who was actually born like a human being and started to awaken more and more to the divine messages that were coming into his life. Then I found the Gnostic texts through my broad reading. I, I've always been someone who reads many, many books. And now I was confronted by the Nag Hammadi Library. And what do you do when you're confronted by the Nag Hammadi Library? So I became a heretic. I understood it was heresy. And I had to either admit to myself it was heresy and accept it as heresy and go into it or reject it. You know, so I didn't reject it. I went deeper and deeper into the heresy. So I read deeply into the Gnostic texts and definitely the Apocryphon of John, when you read through all the Nag Hammadi Library and associated other documents, is the core kind of myth that uh, it's included three times, I believe, in the Nag Hammadi corpus and the fourth time outside. It was obviously very, very important because it seems to get at one of the core myths in Gnosticism. And we can go on, what is Gnosticism? And there's different types like Valentinian and Sethian and so on. So there's many Gnosticisms, but it seems to be the one, the, the myth in the Apocryphon of John, which is the most cohesive, the most complete, presented in the most cohesive form within that book, as opposed to all the little fragments that we get everywhere else of the Gospel of the Egyptians or trimorphic protonoia or, or whatever. So uh, I focused my studies in, on, on that particular text and uh, it was very beneficial. You have to engage a text with your life. You have to engage a text with your own needs as a human being, bring your soul to the, the, the book. So that's what I did. So I brought my soul and my spirit uh, to, to the text and the results were fantastic that they, they seemed to consistently answer whatever questions I had and the most fundamental questions. How was the world created? What happens to us after we die? And also what role does the Christ and Sophia play in the time in between the creation and the apocalypse? You know? so, so all those questions get answered by that text. And for me, the, it comes the closest to summarizing my readings into Egyptian beliefs, Babylonian beliefs, Greek beliefs, Hermetic beliefs, and so on. That it's not a coincidence that I think Gnosticism came out of Alexandria, which was a melting pot of the influences of all these cultures. And it's not like the Gnostics just kind of created this out of nowhere. They were confronted by all these different cultures and, and 
mythologies and metaphysics and so on, and trying to find the answer. So that was the answer that they, they, they managed to put together in the form of a myth. So that's what the, the Apocryphon of John is to me. And it's a myth that works really well in my life as, as a way to, to move through my life. So why did Catholicism go such a different path in your view? If this myth is the if for you like a, a more holistic or a more true approach to the story of Christ, what do you think happened due to a long series of doctrinal decisions and political decisions and whatnot? Key elements of the Gnostic myth, the fall of Sophia, the, the nature of Christ, all of these things were sort of full-bloodedly rejected as the, the essence of heresy and the worst possible uh, belief by what emerged as orthodoxy and Catholicism. So what went on there, do you think? I wish I had the answer to that question. Yeah, it's, it's an I, unanswerable I, one, but I, I, yeah. I find it fascinating. I do see, though, that the Eastern Orthodox Church does view creation as this gradual process of theosis. You know, the, the, the Christ in the Eastern Orthodox Church is the transfigured Christ, the, the one who appears on the mount, before the three apostles and is a being of light. Whereas we in the Roman Catholic tradition seem to put greater emphasis on this suffering savior, the one who's on the cross. And the fact that he died for our sins and which sins, well, from the garden of Eden and, and so on. So they have to cross over, you have to be familiar with the book of Genesis even to understand Christianity. That was the turning point for me. Uh, that was where I realized I don't believe the book of Genesis. It makes no sense to me. And I don't believe Christ died on the cross for our sins. That makes no sense to me either. There, there was it's just a point at which uh, I, I respect the Christian tradition very deeply. And it's a very powerful mythology that's capable of transforming its believers. But for someone who's more interested in revelation, which is really the most powerful spiritual experiences I've had in my life were moments of revelation, of epiphany. And Gnosticism speaks to those people who have had revelations. But that's what kind of moves us into the underground. And for the majority of people, the church became the mediator, right? That you have to turn to the priest, the bishop, and so on to be mediated in your relationship to God, which of course is being massively rejected today. But it was a structure which functioned for a good 2000 years and they had to eliminate a lot of stuff along the way. So they had to eliminate a Christian savior who was a revealer. And fundamentally the Gnostic view of Christianity is that Christ was a revealer, that he revealed what happened, yeah. And, uh, why he died on the cross is not very clearly presented in the Gnostic texts in the Nag Hammadi library. There's different versions, you yeah. know. Or docetism. He, he didn't die on the cross. He just seemed to. There's various versions yeah. of this as well. The Valentinians exactly. were docetists, I believe. What is your take on Gnosis? What, you, what is Gnosis? What is Gnosis? Yeah, this is where we come back to my point about revelation. And that uh, I think it's well known 
that there are two ways of expressing to know in Greek and that episteme is the more factual way of knowing something, whereas the using gnosis is an experiential form of knowledge. It's direct acquaintance with something. So I believe that when they use the word gnosis, they weren't just people who knew secret doctrines or whatever. They were people who knew God directly. Uh, there's a famous quote by Jung who says, the interviewer asked, do you believe in God? And he says, I don't believe in God. Uh, I know God. Yeah. And it's that kind of an experience, a mystical experience, a direct mystical experience of oneness. And obviously, when you look at the Neoplatonists, the Hermeticists, the Gnostics, and all the people who were around in that period, they had had some kind of mystical experience. And the mystical experience they had was of a divine source of creation. And they saw this divine source of creation as one in the sense that it emanated outward from a unified source and that we are an aspect of the creation that emanated outward from the divine source. So the Gnostic is one who knows that, but they know it not as a fact, they've had the mystical experience that revealed that to them. And then all of these texts just confirm what their experience, what their mystical experience was and gives voice and, and the myth, the language, all of it gives confirmation to the mystical experience. Hmm. Now, what do you make of the esotericism of the Apocryphon of John and related texts? This specific aspect of the esotericism, which is that it's only a small number of people, it's an elect, who are going to have Gnosis and who are going to be able to re-enter the Pleroma. We find this very strongly in, in the Valentinian sources as well. We have very good evidence for this. There's, there's three types of people, you know, the material people, the soul people, and the pneumatic people. And it's, it's only the pneumatic people who are going to actually have Gnosis. Um, what do you make of that? I had trouble with that word, the elect, until I researched it a bit deeper. And uh, you probably know this, that electi is related to light, that they are actually the shining ones. If you want to translate it literally, is that they are the shining ones. Huh. And so they see themselves as light beings, that they were emerged from the one light in the heavens. And there are, so to speak, so many stars in the heavens and that your star was present in the heavens before time. And you will return and realize that you are this solarized being, this light being uh, is your true nature. Now, are they limited in number? That becomes another aspect of the mythology, I guess. You know, that uh, I think for them to create an apocalypse, to an end time, that they had to say uh, there's a certain number which will be awakened and once this number is awakened then the all will come back together into the one and we have the end time so were they being elitist in their outlook i don't think so i think they just recognized that there was this church that was putting emphasis on faith pistis as the way to come to god and they saw themselves differently. They saw themselves as coming to God through gnosis rather than pistis. So there is a place 
in the Valentinian system for those who had the pistis, you know, who were the soul endowed. Uh, there was obviously the place for the spirit endowed, the pneumatics. And then the, the hylix, the ones who had only material existence, were reincarnated and reincarnated. And their ultimate fate, depending on which text that you read, is maybe there was eternal hellfire for those ones, if you read the Book of Thomas, the contender. But uh, also maybe they just disappeared because the material world itself is an illusion. So they just became a part of the material illusion. That, that would be another way of interpreting the Gnostic view of what happens to the somatics. You know? There's another version out there, depending on if we want to consider Clement of Alexandria, mm-hmm. a Gnostic, and Oregon as well, which is that the whole of creation is at different levels. You know, there's the lower levels, there's the higher levels, there's the very higher levels, the angels and archangels and so on. But everything is moving towards God. And the final apocatastasis will be that everything is redeemed and brought up. Even the lowest thing, as you say, it requires a lot of reincarnations, it requires a lot of ethical purification. And in the, in the case of Clement, explicitly, you need gnosis. He's not considered a Gnostic, but he is certainly on about Gnosis. In fact, he's on about Gnosis a lot more than a lot of our Gnostic texts are on about Gnosis. <laughs> it's like one of his key words, you know? And he sees a, well, it's, it's hard to say what, what he sees as the final end game, but seemingly a kind of infinite movement of everything toward higher and higher states of being. And that, that seems also to be the case with Origen, who comes you know, sort of the next generation after Clement, also in the Alexandrian Christian milieu. The whole of creation is evolving back toward the source. And nothing's going to get left behind, not even Satan himself, or at least mm. some people want to interpret origin as having said that, that even the devil would be redeemed in the end. I think uh, if you're familiar with Teilhard de Chardin, who tried to integrate evolutionary theory into Christianity. That's kind of where he ended up as well. Hmm. And uh, it, it, I like it. I like the idea that all the different levels of being are subsumed into the highest level in the end. Because obviously, if you look at all of the Neoplatonic viewpoints that the one eternal being descends in different hypostases lower and lower and lower. So it seems like a natural outcome that everything is resumed or taken back up into the same place from which it had its origin. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong in seeing this as a key structural difference, but what strikes me as the key difference between late Platonists like Plotinus and Christians is that the Christians have a time limit. They have a beginning and an end. So there's a creation and then there's the apocatastasis or the apocalypse at the end, or the, the events laid out in the apocalypse of John, that, that sort of this, this sort of end times where God is going to remake the universe. And the, the Platonists had a, were absolutely wedded to a steady state universe, except for a few exceptions like Plutarch. Like, no, no, it's always existed. It's always going to exist. There is procession from the one and return to the one, but there are constant phenomena going on all the time. It's this sort of almost like a, a standing cycle or a standing wave that's never going to really progress further 
or get less or more. It's just how it always has been and always will be. And the Christians make a much more linear and determined time span to the whole thing. There's a beginning and an end, you know? Mm -hmm. Which is not entirely necessary. In other words, if you live your life, and if it is, this is what makes Christianity unique, as opposed to, say, a Hindu who believes in reincarnation. If you live one unique life, and you have, you're born, you die, and after death, you experience eternal existence, whether it's in heaven or hell, it's eternal existence, then the fate of mankind or all the people who come after you is not even a question at that point, that, that you are the one who is now passed over into eternity and what will happen to mankind as a whole and history and all these other is almost a question that doesn't need to be answered by the Christian who believes in one and unique life with an eternal afterlife. Although some Christians at least believe in a day of judgment, don't they? A temporal and they have day. a hard time, and they have a hard time <laughs> reconciling what that means. You know, right? <laughs> yeah, even Dante was a, a heretic, you know, because of his views of purgatory and everything else. That that uh, that is theology, but it's not something that you'll find answered in the in the New Testament. I think. Yeah, Lawrence, thank you very much for that little exploration of your own uh, theological thinking, which I, or me, let's say metaphysical thinking, which I find very fascinating. Let's talk about the Apocryphon Chapel Project, an artistic project you're working on, which is uh, ridiculously ambitious, ridiculously sort of um, out of its time, in a way. Thank you. Thank it's like you. something... Uh, you know, we're looking at the kind of scope of, you know, like maybe not medieval cathedral level planning and long-term execution, but definitely a big, big project. And mm -hmm. it is for creating a, an artistic sacred space. So tell us about this project. And, and listeners should check out the still images we've included with this blog posting because you'll be able to see at least one painting from this project. I guess I have this life to live. And during this life, as I explained, the Gnostic worldview presented itself. And for me, it, the Nag Hammadi texts were one of the most important discoveries in the 20th century. And no artist has yet tried to bring those texts into the world of imagery, which is what artists did for 2000 years, you know, that Artists were always illustrating the Bible. The greatest works of Michelangelo and da Vinci and so on were based on fundamentally those classic texts of, of our Western tradition. So to have that opportunity to be the first artist to depict Sophia, Yalta Baoth, to depict the Apocryphon of John is a fantastic opportunity. So I see myself as being in the right place at the right time, that uh, these texts themselves only emerged into our culture in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And no artist has really stepped forth to, to create a pictorial program that is able to show the unfolding of the myth. So as you said, I focused on the Apocryphon of John because at least we can narrow it down to one book. And the Apocryphon of John is actually quite good because it gives us the creation myth, talks about Christ walking the earth, and then it talks about what happens at the end. 
So I have within that one text all of the steps that create an entire myth. And so I envision a chapel. And in this chapel, you will have the Genesis passage, which will have seven large-scale paintings on the walls depicting the Genesis passages from the Apocrypha of John, how the world was created, all the steps into the creation of the world. And then you have the main area of the chapel, which is instead of having an altar, there's like a baptismal pool because the baptism was the central sacrament of the Apocryphon of John, rather than say the sacrifice and the and the Eucharist, and behind that is a triptych, which will try to summarize the Gnostic worldview. And I've thought this through very, very carefully. And then you have the Apocalypse Chapel, as I call it, the the chapel or apocostasis, if you want, the the one leading to the end time, and that includes illustrations or large paintings which show the journey of the soul after death. And the monastics were very, very clear as to what the steps or stages were for the ascent of the soul after death. And so I have an opportunity to try and illustrate or show in a painting the knowledge, the steps that were necessary to pass through the afterlife until you could finally experience union with divinity. So it's very ambitious. But uh, on the other hand, what I find very interesting is that I can speak the Apocryphon Chapel about 10 years ago. And then the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art came along. And that was not entirely planned. But what emerged is that many, many people came to me through the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art, offering not just painting as a form of transformation and healing, which is what we do there, but uh, we had a cultural space as well. And in this cultural space, people are using sorts of new healing modalities like chanting, forms of movement, forms of yoga, forms of... And when you read the Gnostic texts, you realize that they were using also vocalizations and other forms to, to connect with the, the sacred and to journey, to go on vision journeys. So spontaneously i've now come across many people who would serve very well as using that space that chapel space to conduct their various forms of, of soul healing that can go on uh, in such a space because i don't see myself as a high priest or bishop or whatever that i just want to create the walls the paintings on the walls and make the space and then open up the space to those people who feel called to come there and do things. And that means the participants as well as the, what we call workshop leaders. So in a weird way, it's come together and now I'm ready. And I've started the first large painting, which uh, you'll see. And uh, that is the first of 12 large paintings. And now I plan to dedicate myself more on creating those paintings and creating this apocryphon chapel space rather than the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art, which took seven years of my life and was very much worth it, but is now coming to an end so that I can begin the next period. Now let's talk about this painting that you have done. This is very much the first painting okay, that you it. will see when you come in. So the apocryphon of John, first you have a little introductory part where John, you know, John is alone in the desert and then 
Christ appears to him, but then the actual revelation occurs. And you have the negative theology where the one is not this, you know, the one cannot be seen, cannot be understood, cannot be spoken of, and so on. But after that, when I say Genesis, I'm not talking about the Garden of Eden. I'm talking more about the theogony, you know, so the the moment when divinity appears and divinity is simply consciousness thinking mind and on another level in the apocryphon of john it is this i that sees and so as it thinks it thinks a thought and it becomes a thought thinking itself so that aristotelian idea of the thinking a thought of itself thinking this this self-reflexive movement where you go from consciousness to self-consciousness and that becomes visualized in this watery light of the eons where the eye sees images in the watery light remembering that vision in this period was active that vision is emerges from the interocular fire as plato called it and projects outward so that vision goes outward the same way that my speech is going outward and as it goes outward it meets with these images in the watery light which become reflections of itself so the thinking and the thought become the father and the mother and the father and the mother are these first images of itself in the watery light these two turn to each other kiss and produce the third which is the child and now you have the trinity you have the thinking the thought and also the reflexive aspect the, the thinking a thought of itself thinking that is the fundamental trinity of the apocryphon of john but the creation continues so so it's it's a oneness which is now divided it's divided into three but as it divides into three it comes back to itself as complete as one again as self-reflexive as self-consciousness mm. and so now it continues to see images of itself in the watery light which reflect itself to itself so the next stage is the four lights which surround the christus and the four lights themselves become 12 states of mind and those 12 states of mind are things like memory understanding but also love or uh, grace truth and of course wisdom being the 12th uh, of those emanations wisdom being sophia and wisdom being sophia yeah and uh, i forgot to mention then that the next stage is the creation of the anthropos and the anthropos is neither male nor female it's also this is all taking place in the upper eons in the heavens so at this stage humanity the anthropos is purely spiritual it's a purely spiritual eternal being Le eventually it will be embodied as adam and eve but at this stage you have the idea the platonic idea of humanity so i'm basically trying to show in this large scale painting that movement that i described how the eye at the top is pure consciousness and i get into some sacred geometry to try and express uh, its appearance dividing or appearing as the father and the mother 
who turn to each other and they themselves create the Christ, the anointed one. Below Christ is the Anthropos and the Anthropos stands between Christ and Sophia at the bottom. And Sophia is one of the 12 states of mind, a, a way for humanity to connect to divinity. That in the same way that uh, the mother and the father are the thinking and the thought and so on, now these di different states of mind, we can return to divinity through understanding, through memory, through grace, through form, and through wisdom. So, so all of these different allegorical figures around the image of the Anthropos are really paths to think through back to the divine state of being. I, I forgot to mention the four lights. So at, at one stage, four lights appear around Christ. And in fact, these four lights, they rule over these 12 different states of mind, which are the 12 upper eons, as they're called. So I managed to try and put it all into one painting, as well as this very elaborate background and so on. It, it, as the first painting you would encounter, as you enter the chapel, because there's kind of three rooms and on the opposite wall, which is another painting I'm working on now, but just in the design stage, you will see the fall of Sophia where she, she creates Yaltabaoth accidentally by turning away from divinity and, and so on. And then Yaltabaoth will create soulful Anthropos. And so you will see all the qualities of soul surrounding the Anthropos. And then we'll move into the Garden of Eden and the tree of Gnosis and so on as, as the whole myth unfolds over the course of all these paintings. It's, a, it's ambitious, as you said, but endlessly fascinating for an artist to be able to spend hours and days and years on this project. I'm just looking at the, the work as you talk about it in a unsatisfactory digital image. What's the scale that I'm looking at here? How big is this painting? Yeah, so uh, it's three meters high and one and a half meters wide. Yep. I'm lucky in Vienna, we have very high ceilings in the buildings. So you can maybe see it behind me here. Yeah. Is, uh, it reaches from the floor to the ceiling in my studio. And to work on the top, I either have to lay it flat on a table or I have to get on a ladder and climb up to the top of the ladder, which I spent many hours doing when I was working with Ernst Fuchs. I have the experience of working on large-scale paintings thanks to my apprenticeship with Ernst Fuchs. But this is the first time I've now tackled a canvas of this size. So one and a half meters by three meters, which is a, a one by two rectangle, and that seems very appropriate. The next painting will be a two by three rectangle. The following painting will be a three by four rectangle. There, there's a lot of geometry involved as this, this whole series progresses. Hmm. And is there a kind of a programmatic kind of symbolic set of decisions you're making? Or is it more intuitive and aesthetic? Like that would look cool. It was my looking deeply into images. It's part of my practice that I do meditations on images. And when I do a meditation, I find a fixed point in the image, which becomes the starting point where the journey begins. It's a visionary journey. And so 
as I stay focused on one point, the painting starts to become three-dimensional and starts to become a vision. That has become just part of my practice. Now, where is the sacred geometry in all this? You need to start from a point, which is the point. And when you understand sacred geometry, you have the compass and the straight rule. The compass gives you the point at the center of the circle. So it is the most obvious, intuitive image of divinity to have the circle. Then you have to take the next step, which is to say you either draw another circle with your compass or you draw a straight line with your ruler. And as I went deeper into this, I realized that, yes, this when you the moment you cut the circle with your straight rule, then, and you draw another circle based on those lines that you created, then you end up in what's called uh, ad quadratic space, that you start to create a grid of squares. When I use just the compass and I do circle, 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 until I create seven circles that's known as the flower of life, and I draw lines within that grid of circles, I end up with the triangle. And I end up in what's called ad triangulum space. And the Gothic masons knew all this stuff and the Gothic architects so that they made their designs. The floor plan was in ad quadratum space. The elevation was in ad triangulum space, that they were using a grid of triangles in which to design the facade of a cathedral and a grid of squares in which to design the floor plan. So any architect worth his substance in salt or stone would know these fundamental principles. And for me, it's important that I also illustrate those principles in the painting itself. So uh, the whole background is a hmm, chapel, but it is actually the divine architecture emerging from the eye at the top and kind of flowing into existence. I have multiple points of perspective in that space and the lowest point of perspective leads directly to Sophia and her gaze and her eye. So I call it the chapel of wisdom because it is in a sense seen from her viewpoint, but as you raise your gaze higher and you then come to the divine eye at the top and really this is all being created by the divine eye. But to begin with, this is the chapel of Sophia and Sophia wisdom it's through wisdom that we learn these fundamental structures that I was describing, the sacred geometry, but also I get into the entire Pythagorean platonic world of harmony, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the one to two, the two to three, the three to four. Yeah, listeners might um, want to check out our, our episode on the Timaeus here because we talk a little bit about the, the creation via ratios. Yeah, and, and proportions and how they relate to each other. And so, again, this has been important for architects throughout history and musicians, but also artists, because those same ratios go into the creation of harmonious space for a painting. So we have to measure out the space of our paintings using these ratios of one to two, two to three, three to four, and so on. It's there. It's in the painting. And anyone who takes the time of looking deeply into the painting would be led back in time through the history of Gothic 
architecture, these ad triangulum and ad quadratum measures of space, and then even further back into these platonic Pythagorean ratios, which were the substance really of architecture in Greco-Roman times. And the substance of the universe itself, if we're to take the uh, creation myth of the Timaeus as an, an account of how things came about. Well, it's answering as logically as it can using geometry and algebra, how did the many come from the one? Which is the same question which was in the minds of the Gnostics. You know, how did the many come from the one? And how are the many subsumed back into the one? So it's asking that question, which is the eternal question. So as long as you interpret divinity as this oneness, which all of those cultures did, you know, Plato, Pythagoras, and so on. Although the Gnostics are also maybe asking, well, you may disagree, but they're also asking um, the question, how did imperfection enter into a world that comes from the one? And answering it in a very dramatic way, right? So someone like a Plotinus has exactly the same problem of evil problem that the visionary John of the Apocryphon of John has, which is, why is the world so crap if its source is perfection beyond perfection. It's a perfection so great and so pure and so unified that even to describe it as perfection is not going to do it justice. How do you end up in a world where shit goes wrong and stuff is broken and stuff wears out and all the, you know, the physical reality we see around us? And his answer for it, Plotinus's answer is just, well, we're very far away from the perfection. We're many steps removed from it, and we, and matter, matter is a problem. Although he never quite satisfies with his theory of matter as to, uh, is it the source of evil? How can he really have evil in his system, etc.? Mm. But the Gnostics are saying, no, 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 something went wrong. You know, and there was a catastrophe. No, you know, I get asked the question all the time. So you told me that Sophia created Yaltabav. Why? And the moment you tried to answer that question, you're kind of like, oh, well, and, and it's one of the greatest mysteries of Gnosticism. Why did wisdom create error, which is ignorance? Yaltabav is ignorance. And why this step in the creation? I think about it all the time, believe me. And they had to account for the imperfections, like you say, of the present world. Some women are very upset that it seems to be all the blame seems to be cast on a woman, a female character. So it becomes like a patriarchal kind of explanation. I don't really agree with that. I think that the, the feminine is portrayed both positively and negatively in Gnosticism. Uh, At least you have a feminine in Gnosticism. Yes. You know what I mean? Exactly. As opposed to yeah. other forms of Christianity one could mention. Yeah. So, although then there's the kind of new age groups that only see wisdom as this positive figure and they don't quite understand that she plays a quite negative role in the Gnostic myth. So that's what gives it the mystery is she's enigmatic. She's, there's no explaining why she took the step that she did. And, and I'm having a hard time with this second painting because I'm trying to 
explore her the state of soul you know the the emotions that she was experiencing that moment in in creating Yaltabah and is she defiant is she you know was it a defiant act you know she didn't she turned away from her consort that's very very important and so she created on her own why did she create on her own well maybe because the earth mother always created on her own without the masculine from before Christianity, you know, that's one possible answer to the question. And, uh, and why is the Virgin Mary able to give birth without sexual intercourse? You know, that, that she has a magical power she's able to, and they have a whole theology to explain why, but it's a goddess who creates from ex nihilo, from nothing. And, most people intuitively understand that, that, that the goddess is able to create without the male as necessary for the conception, for the creation. It's just that in Gnosticism, what she creates is material existence and material existence is viewed negatively. But I, I tend to view material existence within Gnosticism is it's definitely negative, but it's an illusion that the, what is real is the spiritual. The soul realm mediates. And then the final level, which is the material, you know, even Plato says it's a world of becoming. And as the world of becoming, it's not the true world. It's just this temporary kind of reflection of, of being. So uh, I, I do hold that viewpoint that this material world is, is, is an illusion fundamentally. And uh, because it deteriorates, because it falls apart, because it's temporary and for all those reasons. Hmm. It's fascinating to me because just just as the speaking on the level of myth, the, the the Christ of let's say Catholicism, right, with this great insistence, the 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 post Nicene insistence that he's a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man at the same time. So in other words, he's eternal and unchanging. He has he's he belongs in the higher world, but he suffers and you know, probably has to have a poo and sweats and all that physical stuff at the same time, both. I kind of see that some of that maps onto the Sophia because she also has a foot in both camps. She's in the Pleroma. There's nothing material about her, right? She's in the higher world. She's at the right hand of the father, as it were, although not at the right hand, but at the bottom of a long, very complex hierarchy of emanations. But through her action, creates this realm of suffering and, and change and decay and so on. There's some aspects of her that, that overlap with the traditional Catholic Christ figure and others that don't. And also, I think of Milton's Satan, who is, for the majority of Paradise Lost, is just he's obviously a hero figure. You read it and you're like, Milton is in love with this guy, you know because he is infinitely brave and stands on his own two feet. And he's like, yes, God created me, but I can create something myself. And then in the final chapter, he's turned into a snake. And you realize that anyone who tries to oppose the divine plan is, is a, a bad guy. But there's something so noble about that just standing in the face. Or maybe this is because I come from a kind of individualist, <laughs> modern post-Protestant world, you know what I mean? This sort of 
the one romantic figure standing like a rock, no matter what fate and God throw at him, he refuses to yield because of his own inner excellence, you know? Mm. I think that's another reason why the Nag Hammadi library is so fascinating is that you have all these texts which are supposed to be related to each other and yet have inherently contradictory messages, uh, right. explanations, depictions of, say, this Sophia or feminine divine figure. And in some of the texts, she remains divine with no need of the male. In the Apocryphon of John, she defies the male she creates without her male consort, but falls. And I think if you're going to write a myth, you kind of need a, a movement. And she becomes the downward movement. Christ, the Savior, who happens to be masculine, is the one who then saves her. You know, she becomes emblematic of the fallen soul. And so she becomes emblematic of us who are trapped in the material world. And so Christ will descend and awaken and save. And, and so, so you see the necessary role she plays in the myth for Christ to be able to be the savior. I, I think you know that even within the Apocryphon of John, there's what's called the Pranoia hymn where Pranoia, who's a feminine figure, becomes a salvific figure. And then we understand that, oh, no, no, but Pranoia is the savior, so we must be talking about Christ here. So, so But it, it's clear that they're taking an earlier hymn where you had a feminine savior figure and they're interpolating it into the text and then kind of adding Christ's name onto it and saying, well, there you are that we have this saving moment of grace where, where the fallen soul represented by Sophia is, is going to be liberated and saved from, from the bondage of fate and the archons and everything else. Hmm. Are you going to depict the archons in your chapter? Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. That's the challenge. It's a, it's a, I don't think I, I don't have a clear image in my head. I, I'm going to take a page out of the book of Ernst Fuchs and smear some paint and look into the paint and try to see the archon. To, to, to construct it is very difficult. You have to open yourself up to what is there and let it speak through to you. So, so I'm very challenged by the idea because I would, I would go so far as to say that I, I'm taking on the depiction of Yalta Baoth and the Archons over the next two years. It's gonna be a very challenging period of my life because I have to go into that world of influences and so on. Yeah, it's open myself up to those forces and so on in order to depict them. Yeah, aye, I'm aye, not imposing my own, yeah. Alchemy helps a lot. I'm getting deeply into alchemy and alchemy is very, very useful for understanding the material world and what's inherent in the prima materia. You know that Yalta Baoth is the prima materia. And so I'm just going to engage myself in the prima materia, calcine myself in the blackness and, and see what emerges. So that's my alchemical approach to, to <laughs> the archons. Right on. Well, Lawrence Karwanda, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about your art and your project. 
And uh, I think this is a good time to wish you all the best and suggest that you stay esoteric. Does that mean we get to listen to the music crescendo at this point? I think I it does. 